0: all right hello and welcome back to between the liars with ryan marcello hello everyone josh and how's it going there and austin hello everybody And today we'll be discussing the eviction moratorium that the CDC recently released and it was struck down by the Supreme Court a couple of days ago or a couple of weeks, I guess, by the time this comes out. So what we're going to cover today is the events that led up to this. We're going to talk about the CDC involvement and the Biden administration involvement, and then we'll talk about the Supreme Court ruling. So I will pass this over to uh, Marcelo to kick us off.
1: Yep. So when we talk about the eviction, uh, the moratorium on evictions, we're talking about the suspension of evictions for basically landlords in the United States that they cannot kick their tenants out. Um, This was passed a while back because of the COVID pandemic. Uh, Many people, probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in the U.S., could not afford to pay their rents. And this was passed to basically prevent these evictions from happening. And this expired in July
0: 31st. And then uh, Josh, what else do you have to add to this? Yeah, the
2: Central uh, the Center of Disease Controls initially begin this program as a way to prevent the disease from spreading because people can quarantine in their homes, they can stay at home. And if they're forced out to live on the streets, that's a much more communal style of living and a lot more higher contact. And you're just much more likely to get sick in general. And so they premised this argumentation based on their authority uh, and control over public health. And that was where the government had been arguing from that they had the eviction to continue past the congressional law with the CDC um, decision. So
3: what the CDC was trying to do with the eviction moratorium was to prevent renters, landlords, etc., from giving people the boot for not paying the rent. Obviously, they didn't have the authority to just outright declare this um, and prevent people from using their private property as they wish but they were going to do this anyways given the pandemic the supreme court saw this and probably coming to the conclusion that they didn't have the authority to do this but it was about to run out anyways the eviction moratorium the timing was almost up so they kind of left it as a it was kind of a moot point so they didn't really rule on it and was going to let it run out on its own time So when
0: this expired, the option that was left and what was pushed was that Joe Biden signed an executive order that this was going to be the case. And that was what the Supreme Court ruled was unconstitutional. President Biden did not have the unilateral authority constitutionally to extend this. It could go to Congress, but he could not do it. The CDC elected to pass their own mandates based off of the scientific guidelines that they had been trying to set. Some of the new rules that they laid out was that That you were basically not allowed to evict someone. You were not allowed to force the collection of rent on your tenants. If you tried to evict someone as a single owner rather than a company, it could result in up to a $100,000 fine for that eviction and up to one year in prison or both. And it could result in up to $250,000 fine and up to one year in prison or both if that eviction led to a death. And Biden was the one who had been encouraging the CDC to go through with this.
1: So one thing I, and by the way, this will be a running theme in this conversation, is that I am in favor of a mor- moratorium on evictions. And you can tell from my argument at the beginning is that, sure, you know, the health aspect is there and I think that people living on the street can transmit the disease much more easily but here's you know here's a, a shocking fact is that living inside a home is probably preferable than li- not than not living inside of one um i would assume that many people who were unable to uh, complete their rent payments during the pandemic because they lost their job or for any other reason were uh, very much appreciated the more term on evictions and this coupled with Other approaches that Congress took, like putting a moratorium on mortgage payments as well, seemed to be the way to go for a long time. And and now the fact that they want to extend it, uh, just um, at least for now, to me, seems like the right call.
0: Josh, initial thoughts on your part. Another
2: argument the government presented on why the moratorium had to continue was that, when the Congress had passed the legislation to allow them to disperse um, and prevent people from being evicted, there was a lot of money assigned to this project that was going to be distributed out to the states, and then the state programs were responsible for getting this to their and, you know, respective citizens so that the landlords at the end of the day could be paid. This has worked in a lot of areas, but for a significant portion of the United States, their state governments have been very slow at ruling out these aid programs to the states. And um, I think as reported by PR, it was like only about five percent of those federal dollars uh in about fifteen states had been rolled out. And so this has been like an uneven impact of like one when Congress did take action, other parts of the government apparatus have failed, um, citizens in getting the aid that was, you know, duly and lawfully entitled to them.
1: Do you happen to know why it uh like the money just hasn't been distributed? Like was it just the states just did it? I don't know. Like it that doesn't make any sense yeah. to me, but
2: there wasn't Uh, the federal government did not set up an application program so basically it's that they turned to the states and said here is money you set up the websites you set up the flyers you set up the information programs so it's a mix of like government bureaucracy of where they had to set up like you know teams and organize how to like do this you know as an entity but at the same time how do you get this information out to the citizens what do they need to apply Um, and so part of me would imagine there is going to be a level of just bureaucratic nonsense, depending on you know, what state it's going to be. That probably hindered a lot of uh, people from getting access.
0: Josh, you actually bring up a great point about the unawareness that the American citizens have. Most people don't know that actually, right now, if you're behind on your rent, you're in danger of being evicted. If you've got all these fees piled up, you can actually file with the federal government right now and they will pay all the backlog for your rent in up to three months upcoming. So they will get you current, they will take care of your fees, and they will pay up to three months of rent. So for me, one of the interesting things about this was that the CDC was trying to pass something that almost seems like a moot point because the federal government government has the money in order to make these people current on their payments so that they're not behind and not in danger of being kicked out on the streets because of their outstanding rent and payments. So I guess I'm one of my questions then would be why the CDC was passing something like this that seems to be almost a little bit redundant.
1: Well, I would say that it. it- I would consider it just additional protections. Like, why do we have redundant policies on top of each other is to make these policies more effective. In case one of them falls through, then you have the other one as a backup. In the case of this specific one, um, yeah, I mean, sure, the government has the capacity to pay for all of our rent. By the way, I did not not know that. Um, But I I remember having a conversation with a friend uh, a few weeks ago. We were talking about the eviction moratorium. And then she was like, wait, so I could just not pay my rent? And it's like, well, technically, you know. <laughs> you could, you could technically, technically up, yeah, up, up. <laughs> <laughs> you could, yep. and but you know, I, I'm a good citizen. I, I, I pay my rent. I'm also privileged enough <laughs> to have the money to pay my rent. I think that. The CDC doing this is just further reinforcing, maybe even giving a signal to the rest of the government, like, hey, maybe if you have the money for all of this, then maybe you should make your voice louder and tell the people, hey, you know, we have the money, you just need to apply for it. By the way, not a good enough excuse.
2: You know, Ryan, on one aspect, this is like the other side of our constant debate over what's the correct position for the government to be acting as an involvement. The federal government did what is, uh, in a lot of you know, at policy, people would say a more conservative approach to distributing funds on the federal level, where instead of there being a federal program, they did these, you know, grants of just chunks of money given to the states and they told to disperse onto their own ends. But this has led us into this situation of where law was passed, you know, funds were raised and appropriated. But now, because of the fragmented system of our state governments, certain people haven't been able to You know, and very disproportionately, you know, haven't been able to get access or been made aware of the availability of these funds. And I do think a large part of that falls down to the you know state governments because that's where we see the vast you know discrepancy between where this money has been used and where other states have fallen through about it.
0: I think it's a very interesting approach that benefited both the people who were falling into debt and the landlords because if this had been made aware to the people and it was more readily accessible information, landlords would be helping their tenants fill this out. Because if the tenants are either incapable of or refusing to pay their rent, the landlords are not getting paid. And if the landlords are not getting paid, then they have an incentive at that point to help the tenants to fill out these forms so that the tenants are no longer at risk of being evicted and the landlords are getting paid. So really, this was a program that was targeting the benefit of both the tenants and the landlords. And it's kind of fallen flat, like you mentioned, Josh, because lack of awareness and also failure of the state portion to spread this out efficiently. I actually wasn't aware of the money being passed off to the states in one portion of this. I don't know if we're talking about two separate approaches or if this was a federal mandate that the states failed to pass out. I I think that part would make more sense to me. I don't know if you guys have any additional information on that. The
3: point that I'm really stuck on is the fact that federal government doesn't really have the constitutional authority to do this. There's nothing in the constitution that says they're able to, essentially the first time I heard about this, it sounds to me like usurping private property and trying to dictate what can be done with that as far as collecting rent, effectively alienating these landlords. I'm glad here there are some provisions being made, some programs being set up so that landlords can get the rent that they are rightfully owed. But um, It doesn't sound like it is panning out as well as we had hoped on that front. The thing that I find most troubling out of all this is the fact that the CDC is not an elected body. They are exactly what is typically, I don't want to say feared, but typically um, that I approach cautiously. It's a group of bureaucrats who have been appointed that we have no authority over whatsoever. You can make the argument that we have voted people in that appoint them, but I did not vote the people in that appointed the people in the CDC because they were appointed decades ago, probably before I was born. But it's part of that immovable undercurrent that underpins the establishment that we don't really have any power over. They're going to get to serve past Biden's cabinet, past the next president's cabinet, past the cabinet after that. And there's nothing we can do about it because they're completely unaccountable. And they have been pushing the Biden administration to move in directions that are unconstitutional, like this eviction moratorium. Honestly, regardless of the pragmatic application of the eviction moratorium, this were me more than anything else. And this is probably the biggest problem I have with the federal government is this immovable bureaucracy that's kind of sitting underneath all of it.
2: I was looking at a quick um, bit of it, and I'm not sure of what state this is coming out of, but like for, and there's an example given in one of a related NPR article about this topic of where some state programs had a 10 page application for this aid that's ridiculous that's going to deter a lot of people like that's just obscenely and almost in in my opinion undeniably intentionally um, obtuse like program of like just trying to make bureaucracy with the intent of it will dissuade people from you know continuing to wade through all of that to get to this you know benefits that the government's you know passed
3: I'm not really sure, Josh, you'd mentioned that it seems like this seems intentional from the states preventing people from being able to fill out these applications, whether it be the length of the application or whether it be not letting citizens know that these programs are in place. I really don't see what the motive could possibly be for states not wanting a decent size of, you know, entire class of people, people who own land on rental properties, keeping them from getting paid. I really don't understand what the purpose would be in that. Doesn't mean that's not the case, but I just don't see any motive there from the states. And as far as long paperwork... I would say 10 pages of paperwork is a more than a fair trade to have the government pay your rent <laughs> and catch you back up. But um, also just the fact that this is an institution of the government, of course, it's going to be a 10 page paperwork and not an easy thing to go through. The federal government is partly responsible for it. So take that as you will. <laughs>
1: I I was just going to say, it's it's something that um, really didn't happen with other policies that most more people got benefits from, like the payments, like the $1,200, the $600 that that the government gave out because they just blanket decided to just give them out to everyone. You know, can you imagine how many people would have missed out on that money? I mean, and people did miss out on that money, even people like who were homeless and uh, needed help to get that money because they didn't, they didn't file taxes last year. and So you even, even then you see a lot of people flying through the cracks. Um, but then when you make things harder for people to get their money, you will have people who will miss out on it. And that's just uh, their own excuses should make this process easier.
0: No, absolutely. Uh, that definitely makes it a lot harder for them if they don't know about it. And then like Josh mentioned with the 10 page document, I, I do wonder how much of that is is necessary because as much as we hate uh, <laughs> the red tape of bureaucracy, there are certain things that need to be filled out and helping people and making that accessible in that instance would be key. To me, the most troubling portion of this was that it was the CDC passing, not just recommendations like they did earlier and saying hey people are sick it's best for them to stay at home but at this point saying that we have the power as the CDC to not only mandate that landlords cannot force the collection of rent they also cannot evict people but there's also going to be a, a law that says that they're going to be fined and up to one year in prison. To me that's the most troubling portion because when Congress did it we elected those people. Agree with it, disagree with it, however you feel about it Congress passed it. For me seeing the CDC do this I think is is very troubling and, and exactly why it went to the Supreme Court in the first place.
1: We could jump ahead then to the next point is that uh well it it might be very aggressive and it might be very, you know, they're gonna like put you in jail, they're gonna find you hundreds of thousands of dollars for this. But if you're the CDC then what what power do you have to like are, are you gonna sue people like I don't, I don't know how the CDC would be able to enforce this in any way.
0: And that's, that's another question that I have. is not just the precedent that's being set in their attempt to do this, but when we debate on the circuit, when you lay out a plan, you have to have an agency that's going to pass this, in this case, the CDC. You also have to have an enforcement. They don't really have any teeth, like you mentioned, Marcel. It's a very fair point to actually make sure that this goes out. Like, what if I'm a landlord and I evict someone I'm not quite sure in that instance how the CDC would follow through with that. I do know uh, that they were, I'm not sure if they wrote this law or that if it was just under this section, it's, uh, U.S. Section c 183955 So I know that it's in the law. I did see that. I don't know if they wrote that or if they're just trying to claim that it falls under that section for those fines.
2: So they were trying to claim that this was the statute that they were basing their eviction moratorium on. This okay. law was initially passed back in 1940. And it was just looking at like what is the appropriate way for landlords to terminate leases and when it's appropriate and when it's not. And so they were referencing parts of this law of looking at where the termination of a lease can lead to the death of someone. Of basically like, you know, the landlords kind of either negligently or even in a somewhat knowingly fashion taking an action that is going to cause the death of the former tenant. And so that's what they were claiming. And they also had built it on this statue that allowed them to control housing under CDC order because of like fumigation of uh, pest control or otherwise containing people to a property. And I forget what exact statue that is. So nothing new was kind of written here. And it was actually noted in the Supreme Court opinion that they did kind of take a statute that wasn't really meant to be interpreted this way and be like, but we can. Because realistically, the law is like, if someone is being being required to quarantine you can evict them and then the cdc tried to argue well what if the whole society is being argued you know being that's, required that's to that's actually
1: i mean i don't want to call it, you know i don't want to say clever because obviously every, there are a lot of shade organizations use it the legal code for things like this but it's actually so basically if someone would be required to quarantine then they cannot be evicted well everyone's required to quarantine so yeah, everyone yeah. cannot be evicted
3: Just to kind of hit on what Marcelo said a little earlier, I think it is quite clever of them to use it this way, but not clever in an admirable sense, clever in a Machiavellian sense of gaining more power than they should. We're not under a blanket quarantine in this nation. We may have been for a little bit last year, but we certainly aren't now. I think to use that as argumentation for extending the moratorium, particularly this year, I don't think that really carries much water. If you get sick, then you personally would be expected to quarantine for two weeks. But there's not a national order from on high that the entire nation is being locked down again for two full weeks or whatever. So I don't really understand that argumentation if the CDC were going that direction and calling for the moratorium to continue.
0: In addition to the CDC kind of taking this unilateral movement at the encouragement or behest of Biden, to me, this seems troubling uh, because Biden full on admitted in his interview when he was talking about this happening and saying he was going to encourage them to do this, that he said that it's not constitutional, can't do this. However, by the time it gets through the Supreme Court, by the time we actually figure this out and it's ruled unconstitutional, it will have bought these people time. And in that time, we will have been able to do kind of what needed to be done. I think in this instance, he's trying to find a way to justify that action, but also I think that action should be rightly terrifying to the American people because you're having the person at the head of the United States doing something that they openly acknowledge is unconstitutional, does not pass constitutional rigor, will be struck down, and I'm going to do it anyway. Like, to me, that's very, very I, troubling.
1: But I, I do I do have, like, I, I think there's two conflicting conflicting thoughts here, and, and the first, and only talking about the CDC here, you know, we can leave biden for a little bit later but so the cdc is putting this and this is like very aggressive very troubling but at the same time they can't enforce it then either it's a problem or it's not like either the cdc is putting this and it's going to like cause so so much trouble for landlords everywhere or the cdc no matter what they do it's not going to do anything because they can't enforce it so i I feel like you know again i I think it's either a problem or it isn't uh in in the way of like people being evicted or not
0: what do you think josh You looked like you wanted to say Um, something.
2: (laughs) I think doing stuff that's intent that you kind of know is illegal as the uh, president is an age old classic American tradition. So take back to the Civil War. Um, Abraham Lincoln suspended parts of the Constitution in the South and had plain old unmilitarized U.S. citizens tried and executed in martial courts. Uh, a uh, military officer serving as the judge, jury, and probably, you know, executioner. Um, the Supreme Court came in about three months after the war ended and was like, um, President Lincoln, that is not acceptable behavior for the federal government to be doing. Don't ever do it again. The steel seizure for World War II also reminds me of this, of when we were like, hey, um, we need your steel plants. And um, sorry, we're just taking them when the business resisted. And after a little while, the Supreme Court came back and said, no, you can't do that. But it was for at least a little while necessary to a high exigence and national priority of required a government response and so that's it's been done a lot in the past when the president's been like yeah I know but we debated out in the court system for a reason
3: So what I'm hearing in line with those two points, Josh, it would have been better for previous President Trump back in 2020 to solidify his um, ban to all nations to sequester us and probably to usurp the entire private medical system and entire military and industrial complex to lock our entire nation down because it was necessary. Obviously, I think that would be wrong. But it sounds like what you're advocating for by appealing to those two previous things and saying it should extend it to the future or that Biden is justified in this. It really sounds a lot like totalitarianism, as long as it kind of fits within the scope of what you want done, but I don't think that's a good way for a free society to move forward, regardless of the circumstances.
0: See, to me, that's just not a reason to do that. Like the fact that you can look back in history and say, you know, under these extreme circumstances, like this has happened. Like, sure. Like that <laughs> it's called precedent, right? It's an American tradition. <laughs> OK, but when you take an argument that way, it's called an appeal to tradition saying we've done it this way. It's happened. Therefore, it shouldn't. Like, I don't think that that undercuts the point that that should be terrifying. And yes, but, there's but, a but there's, like,
1: I get it, you know, but I, I do get it because it's, you know, and and I, I also want to jump in. Like, what about is? you know it's like well what about the other president who did the same thing i am happy i I guess in this case and we've touched on this before but looking at the end and like going through the means like i would i am happy that biden is willing to put this in front of you know the supreme court and saying okay it's gonna fall but while it falls people won't be evicted and let out on the streets and possibly die because of like you know this global pandemic that we've been having in the last i don't know 18 months however long it is now um if he did that knowing I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I'm, I'm, I'm much happier with him doing this than then him just like sitting in a conference room and saying like, sorry, we know it's unconstitutional. We did everything we could. Um, you lost your house.
3: I'm still having a hard time seeing the connection being drawn uh, by the CDC that if you you get evicted, you're going to die. I don't really know how they would prove that connection there. And I certainly don't think that it provides enough of a grounding for such an unconstitutional authoritarian power grab as to be able to tell landlords what they can and cannot do with their property. I just I haven't heard an argument made making the connection between those two things, but I really don't see it. And until that argument's made, I don't think I could come down on the side of thinking it was a necessary move or that continuing it is certainly not necessary.
2: I, th- I think there's also a difference between uh, doing something like this knowing eventually the other branches of the government are going to call you on your nonsense and say hey quit this and doing this with the intent of overpowering the other branches of the government and using your gov- your branch of government to like then force it it's like it's one thing where the president is basically in, it, there are times when you intentionally foul in a baseball game in a, in a football game and you know in soccer like you'll intentionally take a penalty sometimes because that's the better play for the long term of the game and and so I think there's a difference between when someone's you know trying to tyrannically overtake the government and versus someone is intentionally fouling because it's the better play I, I think there's something to be said about that difference
0: I think I can grant you that there's there's something to be said about the difference. I don't think that that makes it any better. I don't think that equating the leader of the free world toying around with his own preferences as intentionally fouling is the same as a single player who's making a decision that affects them. It does affect their team, but you know you're you're making that excuse for someone who's in charge of millions of people. And I I, I really don't think that the fact that this was checked as it should be and that's a success of the government and its setup undercuts how terrifying it is that someone can do that and that not only can they they're willingly doing it and they are so brazen about it that they are stating their quiet thoughts out loud the quiet part out loud of I know this is not constitutional I'm going to do it anyway to me that's that's particularly troubling
3: yeah and just to add on to what Ryan was saying there I don't think we should be applauding government institutions or bodies that go against the Constitution, what's supposed to be the foundational document for our nation and for our laws, they just go against it. I don't think we should be applauding them for that, even if we happen to like the results for the moment. Even if we, you know, if you think that the eviction moratorium is right and good, um, not passed by Congress, but just kind of thrown into existence by Biden himself or by the CDC, you might like that outcome. But if you set that precedent, like you had mentioned earlier, Josh, if that precedent is set, you can't really put that back in the box. It's let out already. I don't think that leads anywhere good. I think that the next time someone is in office that you don't like or don't agree with, they will use those same powers and authorities that have been set before them that they do not, should not have access to. They'll just use them to do whatever they want, regardless of what the law says and what the American people want.
1: I am, and again, I am am trying to not go into like the whataboutism of the president that we had in the last four years before, this where he did a lot of things that could be considered unconstitutional and were considered unconstitutional and were, would eventually fall apart. But I guess I guess, to me, like, it is not as horrifying to me and to, to many of us is because we've already seen it. Like We know how much power the president has like with all of the executive orders and everything that's happened in the past. And I know that people are going to do this anyways. So I guess... And and in this case, you know, and I'm I'm picking, it's party politics, but I'm I'm picking a side here is that I'm at least glad that this power is being used. Again, we're we're talking about eviction, which is, you know, a life-threatening thing that can happen to many people.
0: So the one common factor, and this would, this would come down to the decision on this between this instance, taking that extreme executive power, unilaterally making that decision and the ones that Josh mentioned earlier, the ones Josh mentioned earlier were extreme instances that were war with the first one you mentioned, it was the civil war. The second one you mentioned was world war two, very drastic changes. And in times of war, we do wind up forfeiting a certain amount of our freedoms and liberties. The question I think then in the linchpin for this argument that you guys have then would probably rest on, are? we still in that time of crisis i think there's an argument to be made for why we are and i think there's an argument to be made for why we are not and i think that if if we can show that it is in fact so severe that extreme action is warranted then it mitigates the extreme action itself we're seeing that it is more acceptable more more palpable to the people because of the extreme circumstances
2: i mean i think The pandemic is the most extreme circumstance the country has faced in a a while. This is the largest mass casualty event in a very, very long time. Like We caused chaos and war in the Middle East for 20 years, over 4,000 dead Americans. As tragic as that was that day of, we responded with a prolonged war. There's over 600,000 dead Americans. By the end of this pandemic, probably more people will have died from it, or more Americans will have died from it than they died fighting in World War II. And that's just the deaths. There will be millions, tens of millions of people who will have lifelong or at least several years, three, four years in the, in, the, you know, in the future, side effects from this disease. And there are obviously millions of more cases like that around the world and millions of more people around the world who will die. And so it does, I think, measure into, you know, is the CDC correct in its logic that they can reduce cases from spreading but keep people in their homes? And is that worth it? Because 600,000 dead Americans is... You know, it's more severe than almost anything else we could have imagined. What else, what else are we afraid of in a gigantic war than a mass casualty list?
3: I'm still just can't really get over the fact that I'm not seeing the tie-in. I understand the CDC is trying to make, well, they're not really making an argument. They're just kind of asserting that evictions are going to lead to more people catching COVID and dying. Um, I understand the point about living on the streets may or may not be more of a communal lifestyle, but I don't really see the connection that that's exactly where it's going to go. I don't really see how the mass evictions can be directly tied. I haven't seen any proof of that yet to more deaths. And until that's really made, I don't think this thing would be justified. And On that note, this, honestly, it seems like more of a past tense problem. I know we're still dealing with COVID and some of the fallout, but the reason why the eviction moratorium was important for 2020 was because the federal government single-handedly shut down the economy. State by state, we are opening up more. People are getting back to work. People are able to pay their rent more. I understand retroactively trying to catch up the books, so to speak, with the initial eviction moratorium and with the programs that have been set up that allow people to catch up on the rent. But I don't think extending the moratorium into the future is going to be a fix. It certainly isn't. It's like a bandaid on a festering wound. We have to get the economy back on track. We have to open back up. We have to get people working now that we have tools to fight COVID itself. Otherwise, we're just going to, I mean, we're going to end up crashing and burning. This cannot be extended in the future. It doesn't work.
0: I think there's some merit to that, Josh, for sure. I think particularly the the high number, yes. I don't think that right now with the Delta variant, we are in a position that warrants as extreme of action. The Delta variant by definition, as we've talked about in the past, is less severe. That doesn't undercut its severity. It doesn't mean it's something to laugh at for sure. However, I still don't think that the position we are currently in as of today warrants that level of action. I think that it warranted that severe action. We saw that severe action uh, passed by Congress back when we started with this and not as many people were able to work and not as many people were able to make their payments. But as we're coming back out, not to say that we're in a sense of normalcy at this point by any stretch of the imagination, but as we are able to move about a little more freely than we were, I don't think that that level of action is warranted in today's standard.
2: I mean, for a lot of areas, the Delta variant's the worst it's ever been. Tennessee, where we all kind of met and went to, got our undergraduate degrees. If it was a standalone nation, would be the second worst population area per capita density of COVID cases. Over one in seven people of all Tennesseans have gotten COVID of some variant or another. And that's going to like grow, you know, still getting worse there. And so there's definitely parts of our country of where this is the worst it has been. And since it's prolonged nature, and now we have an even more stressed, even more burnt out, even more depleted healthcare system.
3: So Josh, you mentioned that in Tennessee, one or well, one in seven Tennesseans have had COVID at some point. But that I'm assuming that. Covers the stretch from when the disease was first detected, the beginning of 2020, until today. That's not really accounting for the initial variant, the Delta variant, future variants, and it has, says nothing about the extent of hospitalization or the lethality of the disease. Most importantly, again, what like Ryan had mentioned a second ago, typically with viral life cycles, the more variants continue to mutate and um, such, they'll become less and less lethal because the strains that are going to be most infectious will be carried forward. And obviously, if you kill your host, you're not gonna be able to infect as many people. We've addressed that on previous podcasts. With all that being said, if it is pretty bad as far as infections in Tennessee and COVID is not a fun thing to get, not really seeing the tie in between an increased lethality with Delta variant, even if transmissibility is up for our state. And again, all of this, I don't see how it leads to an eviction moratorium in 2021 being necessary.
0: And in that instance, I think it's also important to acknowledge the nuanced portion of the difference between infection rates and deaths, because the deaths are going to be obviously more severe by definition. And we can't allow this level of action, in my opinion, to be warranted based off of infection rates. I'm not at this time familiar with where we're at deaths wise in Tennessee, the example that you gave. But I know that when you mentioned it, it seemed to be like you were talking more about the infection rates. And again, I don't think that this level of rigorous unilateral action is warranted for infection rates because it's not as severe as the death toll.
2: It's also more... Than COVID. If I get in a bad car wreck here in Hattiesburg, there's not an ICU for me to go to. I have to be flown out of state or go somewhere. And that is because of the infection rate. Because even though it may not kill them, there's still going to be a lot of other people who die around it. And so there's a lot of excess death. And I also think it's a little unfair to act like our healthcare workers burn out and their mental health and their jobs are just so expendable of being like, well, it doesn't matter if you will have to work 14-hour shifts, seven hours a day, if people aren't dying because it's very a little bit less. Let's go have a 200,000-person football game in, you know, Neelum Stadium without a mask in sight. It's a pretty tall ask for our, our you know, local hospitals.
1: I think there there will always be, like, the, the standard of, like, okay, when do we... Because I know that when we were talking about the lockdown last year, a lot of the measures were put in place and like, okay, you know, so if we have this many cases, we'll shut down. If we have this many deaths, we'll shut down. Like I, I know that in, in many states, that was like one of the measures, like when do we shut down? And I and I saw that again when we were like starting rolling back. I don't think people were ready for the possibility of us going back into the lockdown situation that we had in the past. All of the mask mandates, all of the vaccine mandates, which I'll emphasize are very important and I don't think very much followed in Tennessee. In, in all of these cases, I feel like uh, there will always be reasons to not be as aggressive and to be as aggressive with measures like this. Uh, and, and I think it's just up to, you know, science to, to tell us, OK, you know, you need to curb the infections because, yes, it might be infections and not that's related. But when you have more infections, you'll have a higher chance of death uh, just simply as that.
0: I'll bring up again that I'm not discounting the toll that COVID is taking right now. But when I go back to what we were talking about earlier of the government is providing aid for this, this freeze on your payments, on your late payments and the evictions. Again, I I don't think that the government or the CDC in this instance should be passing and not just because of their, uh, the CDC is not an elected body that represents us, but also because we have the means right now to have this paid off. And even if I, grant that let's say that it has some teeth, it has some weight and they can actually pass this $100,000, $250,000 fine, the, the prison time for evicting people, if that happens where things are at right now and you are evicted, it's because you haven't gone through the channels that are there. You might not know that they're there. I think that it's more important that we make them aware of the availability than it is for us to be imposing these artificial or even actual laws, depending on how you want to look at it, for something that doesn't need to happen.
1: Make the process easier. Sure, uh, you know, don't leave it up to the states. Just let the <laughs> let the federal government do it, uh, like they did with the with the relief payments. Just set up a universal system. Again, it's not you know I'm making it sound very easy and simple, but I I think <laughs> that you know if 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 you're saying you know instead of putting these uh, pu- punitive you know measures, then just make it easier for people to get the money. We know states haven't been the best at getting the money to people, so just let the government do it, the bigger government.
0: This is actually one instance where I'd agree with you. I think that if the federal government is going to make these funds available, carry it all the way through. And that's coming from someone who doesn't particularly like to see the federal government imposing themselves. But in this instance, they're providing relief. And if you're going to provide relief, I think that you should just carry it all the way through. And if that means stopping at the states, then follow through on that and make sure that it happens. I don't know what that would look like, but I I, I think that there's something to be said about, what Marcelo just mentioned that, you know, you can make it a lot easier for them to follow through in that instance if they just did it.
2: I don't know. These block grants are doing exactly what they're designed to do. Um, block grants are the classic like compromise with Republicans since the early 2000s about how to give aid out to states because they were basically like, okay, well, we understand that you all don't want aid to be given out in the first place, so we're just going to give you the money and then you can design the most obscene process you can imagine. And then it doesn't have to be given out because it's a 20-page application. a 10-page application is reported. Or uh, I was also in that same article talking about in Houston or the website they're going to use to apply and get access through that portal is going to crash for the first four weeks the program's open and only be stable like five, six weeks after um, it's been available. Yeah, the, the, the block grants are designed in this way. It's the same way of like the Medicare expansion. It wasn't this universal thing. It was just, oh, we're gonna let individual states decide. Well, the southeast states decided they did not want this, and now the southeast states have the most depleted healthcare system of the nation of the four quadrants of the nation. Like, um, so to me, this is the intention of these policies, and why the Republican Party was willing to sign on to them is because they realize they don't have to spend these monies, um, and they can just either keep it for their state or send it back to the federal government and avoid the spending like they want to in the first place.
3: I think that's a fairly uncharitable one-sided read at that. I mean... Granted, there are some problems with the healthcare system for the whole country, obviously, and there are definitely problems for the Southeast. You might be able to compare that across, but you could honestly flip that on its head and say that the populace of these states that have more of a welfare program, more of a healthcare that's centered in the government, you could say that the people are being more drained because there's a reason that people are fleeing California and New York, these large government states at exorbitant rates and coming to the Southeast because the people there are being basically having their pockets emptied to fund these programs that are unsustainable and to fund healthcare systems that are unsustainable. So there's got to be a give and take. I'm not admitting that the Southeast is absolutely perfect. I do talk to a lot of family and friends that work in healthcare, and there's a lot with that field we burn out on. But at the same time, there's got to be a reason why people are fleeing these other parts of the country to come down to the Southeast. You can't keep the government's hands in other people's pockets this long and expect citizens to stick around. It's not only unsustainable. I find it just almost immoral at that point.
0: I think I'll agree with you there, Josh. That it does highlight a, a significant problem with the system that's set up. I, I think I I don't want to speak incorrectly, but I feel like we're all kind of in agreement that the aid could and should be more accessible and easier to get to, so that this can happen.
1: <laughs> of course, because everyone in this right. call is acting in good faith. <laughs> right. So if, if we if we all act in good faith, then yeah, of course you we would want the the uh, just I don't know. <laughs>
0: and and I just don't
1: give, just give money. I, just give them money. I, give me money to to pay my rent. Like. I, I I would, could you?
0: Well, unfortunately, that's exactly part of the problem. Is that like if you're someone who is getting by enough to actually be able to make your payments, but it disadvantages you. It disadvantages you to do so. Say you're a grad student, or you're an early career person, or a minimum wage. You might be able to make those payments, but then also, <laughs> to an extent, it is disincentivizing, or at least punishing people who you know are choosing at that point. Or it's incentivizing people to not make the payments out of out of convenience, not to act in good faith. Then
2: I mean, here's an unconventional and a little bit. Bit, but not too bit, uh, early hot take is that the renters and the tenants are unnecessary middle people in this equation of aid. Just tell the landlords you can't collect rent and then just pay the landlords. Like if we're going to have to deal with these people taking a third of four fourth, a a fifth, a half of our paycheck um, just because they decided they own this property. Great. Like if we have to like not evict people, then we're already doing checks and other relief programs for the citizens. So just because if you think about it, only the one landlord needs to apply once for their citizen, for their tenants who can't make the payments versus every tenant having to do their own application. The tenants are unnecessary. Middle people just pay the landlords here.
0: Interestingly, that would also solve one of the problems I brought up earlier of the, the government, the CDC, can't just impose themselves and say, you cannot collect on your private property. So if they're providing the grant at that instance, that also solves that problem and also solves the issue of them actually being evicted in the first place. I think that's actually an interesting take, Josh. I'll, I'll give you that for sure.
1: Yeah, just shut up and take your money <laughs> landlord.
0: <like> this.
3: <laughs> I actually really like that. That honestly makes the most sense. I mean, it's the landlord's money to begin with. They're owed that money. So why would that have to pass through the hands of the tenant? I mean, I, I like that take, Josh. That was a really good call.
2: So at the crux of what the Supreme Court ruled on August 26 is that the CDC overstepped its bounds. They more broadly interpreted a statute of law than they should have. And they just don't have that authority. As we've referenced you know, a couple of times before this, the Biden administration kind of knew it was going to go this way. And so that's the position that the, they took is because of the statute they ruled on had previously been used to fumigate houses and quarantine individuals and tell them they can't leave their houses. And so the, it was a split ruling. I think it was, a, if I remember correctly, it was a 6-3 with the three liberal ju- judges dissenting in the moderate voting along with the, fu- the conservative majority. So pretty cut and clear from some aspect of this legal sense. There's not too much of wild interpretation. It was more of just a very clear, This CDC had never done this before and the Supreme Court decided this would not be the start of it.
0: <laughs> I could be wrong, but I think uh, Justice Roberts actually sided with the minority dissenting opinion.
1: Broken clock is right twice a day.
0: Um, Are you calling so me a broken the,
1: clock? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm calling Justice Roberts. Oh, okay. <laughs> cl- what, so the, the rest of it would basically just be uh, Biden arguing why he did what he did. You know, we've already talked about the money that was distributed to the states and was not adequately and properly and efficiently distributed. So that's so an argument to why the eviction moratorium should continue. And then when asked why Biden didn't try to do this in another way, the uh overseer of the white house rollout of the COVID relief gene Jean- sperling said on npr that biden has double checked, triple check whatever checked uh and this was not possible in any other way so basically given this as a last resort solution
2: uh, and a quick little note it may not uh, we may actually be incorrect at all in just giving a vote count because this uh, opinion was given in per curium, or however you want to say latin uh, make it up as you go it's a dead language um, which means that this wasn't a signed opinion it was rather here is the decision of the court uh, and it is signed as the court rather than individual judges taking sides so there's not even um for what i can look as a pretty okay. quick over much of a even a uh, mm.
1: I, I take back what I said about me too. Good clarification, Josh. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
0: All right, we'll be right back with our hot takes. And we're back. So I gave my um I gave my hot take a
2: little bit earlier that was on the idea that the tenants in this relief program are a little bit of an unnecessary agent if we just need to pay uh, the landlords cuz if we're just getting a hand money to the tenants and tell them uh hand it to the landlords well then just hand it to the tenants like or hand it to landlords like the argument of like handing it to the tenants means well you know they might have you know extra money or money left over you know from that payment and so they could do more things with it but that's going to get filed under well just do that along with the other like rest Of, like, the coronavirus relief we're going to be. The other uh, hot take that we're going to give, so it's going to be the actual spicy take here, is that landlords are just uniquely and ubiquitously parasites. Um, They come in, they claim they own property, whatever that means, and then they think it's fair to charge a third to half of our paycheck and act like feudal land, literal feudal landlords, just collecting our money for their, like, sake of existing. Um, The decline of homeownership in America is a tragedy and it shows a decline of, like, the middle class. Like, even the idea of, like, owning a or owning your unit inside of a larger apartment building or apartment complex is a more preferable system than corporate landlordism. I live in Hattiesburg, Mississippi and this company called London and Settlement, who are also my fabulous landlords who excellently care for uh, the place I live at. They own like half of the town and that's a little bit of an an exaggeration but when you drive through Hattiesburg you see for sale, for rent, London and settlement, London London and Settlement, London and Settlement. and there's like another, like there's two other big companies and these three companies basically have an oligarchy of land in the town. They're buying up all of the houses and then they rent them back to people and it's a terrible system and uh landlords are just entirely unnecessary we could just like sell property more cheaply to each other and never have to involve a giant corporation that doesn't do anything but own the land and collect off the scraps of everything else like the parasites they are All
3: right. So for my hot take, as far as the eviction moratorium notices go, this is a past tense problem. It made, again, I think I've said it once or twice, but just to reiterate, and this is about as spicy as I'm going to get. This is, was a 2020 problem when the virus was brand new and the government stepped in, iron fistedly shut down the economy for the sake of public health. Of course it made sense for rent to not be charged and for people not to be evicted. Now that things are opening back up, the solution is to get the economy rolling and have people pay their rent like normal. I'm a big fan of the government cleaning up the mess that it made by shutting down the economy and by giving landlords access to the rent that they are owed as a legitimate enterprise. I think that's a good thing. But at the end of the day, I don't think extending this eviction moratorium is going to do anything but kick the can down the road, so to speak. I think by continuing this on, we're just going to have a larger and larger pile of debt that is owed to people that deserve to have their money collected. And it's going to just make a bigger problem in the future. So as far as a hot take goes, get the landlords their money and then open the economy so we can get back to work. Having the government make these kind of rulings from on high is not going to, it's not going to do anything but cause more problems in the near future.
1: I will probably not go no go as hot as Josh, but I will say that I did not agree to live in a system where, just because I was born too late to own property, then I have to rent for the rest of my life. And I will probably rent for the rest of my life, sadly, uh, living where I live. But I will say that one of the things that we talked about in, in this discussion was, you know, how do we know when this crisis is bad enough to input measures like this or not? Even before the pandemic, there were hundreds of thousands of Americans that would be left out on the street if they missed one paycheck and they by the by and by default, they missed the pay rent and they were left out without food without medicine whatever and the fact that you have a big chunk of the country uh on the verge of homelessness on the verge of you know total collapse because of because of like, like they miss these very basic things that you need to live like a house like medicine like food whatever i don't want to extend into any more of this but at least when you talk about the homes i do feel like even if covid is gone in a year or not, we'll see that this housing crisis continue to increase and we'll sadly still live in a continuous state of crisis even if we don't acknowledge it.
0: All right, so my hot take is that this was the correct ruling by the Supreme Court to reject the renewal of the moratorium on evictions, even if I don't think that they got all of their reasonings for doing so correct. I also think that the CDC blatantly overreached, and that is exactly why I believe that the Supreme Court made the correct call in rejecting this, because you can't just cobble together reasons to try to take away um, or impose yourself on other people's interactions, specifically private interactions between two parties. Uh, It's also very clear throughout this entire instance that Biden's order and his collusion with the CDC was authoritarian and brazenly unconstitutional. And this should terrify everyone who's seeing this. In fact, it's a disgrace to be lauding him as the people's champion for having passed something through executive order that then has to be struck down by the Supreme Court. In this instance, you you have the CDC and the president essentially usurping private property and revoking that use by landlords to collect, as Austin mentioned, the rent that is due to them. The government cannot intervene in private property matters without cause and process. Josh threw out some interesting reasons before, but they were tied to extreme times of crisis and we're not seeing and still have not seen the same evidence for that. I think it's important to remember that landlords are people too uh, and that they do in fact own that property. Like it's not a matter of like supposedly owning it like like they do own it It is theirs and you enter a voluntary agreement to live there. All right I'm sure you find yourself somewhere between the liars join us next week. Goodbye for now